and he, for some reason, skied off the side of the slope. Eventually, a search ensued. Uh, the ski patrol came, and and uh, we searched for probably an hour, hour and a half. Uh, eventually, they found William, and he was brought to the ski patrol clinic where I was there waiting for him. And after maybe 10 or 15 minutes trying to treat him, the, the lead doctor came out and, and shared the devastating news that he had died. You keep toggling back and forth from being numb and disconnected from everything to then being fully immersed into the emotion of it. How can I learn from this? I can live my life differently. Because one of the things when you lose your child is you're confronted with your mortality head on, right? Because that's not the natural order of things. You, your child should not die before you, you do. And it made me realize that this life we have is very fragile. And this is the only one we get, at least that we know about. Mm-hmm. And so I, in that moment, realized I need to confront who I am so I can live my life differently with more meaning, more purpose. We are here for but a brief moment in time, and we can be intentional about how we choose to live our lives. In my work as a coach, I work with many leaders and see them just on this sort of treadmill, and they're just kind of on autopilot mode going about their days. And they're successful, and that's fine, but are they, are they being as intentional as they can about how they're showing up, about how they're engaging their families, about a slew of things? My sense is the answer is no. How can they bring more vulnerability into their place, more empathy into their work? Well, I think first off, they need to realize. Welcome to Genius Leadership Podcast, where we discuss how to overcome everything as a leader. I'm your host, Anna Lieben, a mind shifter, helping male leaders in tech get out of the firefight mode, become the proactive leaders they want to be and enjoy the ride as they go. Join me every week for honest, insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders. We discuss their roller coaster ride of leading from their zone of genius and when they don't. If you find this show valuable, please subscribe and share it so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. Now, let's get into the episode. Hey, genius leaders. Here is another episode with a wonderful, generous, very real and raw guest of mine, Nick Shaw. Nick is an executive coach and author of the book, My Teacher, My Son, Lessons on Life, Loss, and Love. And we talk about the happenings that he, or the event that has changed his life that he describes in that book, the loss of his son in a tragic uh, ski accident. We go into details of Nick's journey of different stages of grieving how he was doing it, how he was processing the loss, uh, and then getting back on track. And it took him months. And I want to emphasize that if you ever go through anything challenging, give yourself time, give yourself grace. It is a huge process that needs its time. I don't want to talk too much in this intro. I just want you to listen to this and uh, be aware that, yes, we're talking about the the grief and uh, all the feelings that Nick has been going through, but it is a very hopeful conversation. It is a bright conversation. It is very generous and honest. And it also gives you insights into vulnerability and empathy and how you can use Nick's very personal example and experience in your workplace as a leader. So listen to it, enjoy it, take care of yourself. See you on the other side. Nick, foremost, welcome to the Genius Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's very, very happy to be here and, and really looking forward to our conversation today. Me too. I I'm, I'm, uh, really would like to dig into your story and understand the details of it so that both of my own le- learning and this, this podcast is a bit of a selfish journey <laughs> in, a, mm-hmm. in a way because I love learning from my guests, but I'm also for my audience to, to learn from you. So let's start with the story itself. Now it is a five-year mark from the Mm -hmm. events that have been quite life-changing for you, I would guess, and your family. So maybe you can bring us back to the February 19th of 2019. Yes, and absolutely. So yeah, my journey began on, you know, five years ago, you know, in February in in Massachusetts, there's school vacation. And like many families in the Northeast, we typically will go on a ski vacation. Uh, I grew up skiing. It's a huge, it was a huge passion of mine. And so we, we went out to uh, Big Sky, Montana, in the western part of the United States. And 
like so many other years, we, we, we embarked on our ski vacation. And we started out like any other day. Uh, it was a beautiful day. The kids were excited to get out there and, and tackle the slopes of the mountain. And so that's what we did. We started the ski day as we did many other days. And in the afternoon, my older son, William, who was nine at the time, and I decided to ski at the top of the mountain because he was, he was a good skier. He skied on the, on the, on the ski racing team uh, in the town next door. And we skied the top of the mountain. He did great. And as we were making our way down the mountain to meet up with my younger son, Kai, and my wife, uh, Susie, we were on what's called a catwalk, which is a fairly flat, it's a flat road that sort of winds its way down to the bottom of the mountain. And I was probably 10, 15 feet in front of him because I'm heavier than him. And, and my, the weight of my weight carried my momentum a bit further. And something caused him to ski off the side of this catwalk. And on the side of the catwalk, there are steeper slopes and there was heavy powder snow with, with, with trees. And he, for some reason, skied off the side of the slope. I didn't see this happen, by the way. The only reason I found out is because as I was making a, a curve in the road, the, the road started to turn. I was making the turn. A skier came whizzing past me and said, hey, was that your child who went into the woods? And so I immediately stopped, took off my skis and ran up the hill to see if I could find him, but he was nowhere to be found. But eventually a search ensued. Uh, the ski patrol came and, and uh, we searched for probably an hour, hour and a half. Uh, eventually they found William and he was brought to the ski patrol clinic where I was there waiting for him. And after maybe 10 or 15 minutes of trying to treat him, the, the lead doctor came out and, and shared the devastating news that he had died. So nine years old and they're in the middle of nowhere. You lose your child. Yeah. What goes through your mind in the first days and weeks? And I know from friends who had traumatic experiences that usually your body protects you and you forget, but whatever you can recollect, reconstruct, what are those first moments after William's passing? Well, right when it happened, I would say the first thing, as you say, your body protects you. So the first thing that happens is you go into shock. You, you, you go into a shutdown mode. And then periodically, you kind of come out of that shutdown mode because you're overcome with emotion. I would say that was this is in sort of the hours after after it happened, and it's and it's it's a strange place to be because you 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 keep toggling back and forth from being numb and disconnected from everything to then being fully immersed into the emotion of it. So it's it's quite a it's it's a, it's quite a stark contrast. It's back and forth, back and forth, and 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 you know you almost long. You long when you're in that state of emotion to be back in that numb state. And then when you stay too long in that numb state, you want to feel more connected to it. So you long to be in that emotional state. So it's this sort of very uneasy feeling because you're not at ease in, in either state. <laughs> and so that that was, I would say, that happened quite acutely for the early the early days, we call it the first weeks of of what happened. And eventually, you know, you just you just start to go down your own process of grieving and and um it's a mix it's it's a mix it's not it's not as intense the the contrasts are not as intense from this numb state to this emotional state but you know you go into to a state of you know state of paralysis in many ways i mean i, I had to take a six month leave of absence from work because you know I, ju I just couldn't serve my clients in that state so i went into sort of a bit of a shutdown mode where i where i just paused my life and tried to make sense of everything here, actually, I would like to uh, ask two things. The first one, mm -hmm. you, you you had your own company in that moment, or were you? Were I was a partner at a. I was partner. a partner at a, a, an executive coaching and leadership development firm. So yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. I was an owner of a company, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. I had partners mm -hmm. with me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then, there the question comes: like, okay, how do you manage that? What kind of stories are you building around that when this big part of identity of being father to William is taken away from you. And at the same time, you're not capable of doing your work, not mm -hmm. like basic, your professional self is also in a way taken away from you by the pros in the process. So how did you deal with that or what was going on there? And then, mm -hmm. yeah, let's, let's first focus on that. And then we will go in the other part. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very difficult. And I remember I toiled with this question of what should I do about my work for a long time? You know, looking back, it seems obvious that I that taking a pause was was the only thing I should have done. But in the moment, as you as you know, it, as you said, it was hard to shed that part of myself as well. I, I'd already lost my son, and so that part of my life was destabilized. And now I was about to destabilize another core part of my life, which is my career. And so I I resisted it for for a bit, and it was I waffled back and forth: should I go back? When should I go back? 
but eventually, you know, as I connected with where I was, I just realized, you know, you know, I work with people, I work with executives trying to help them work through their problems. And I was in no state to do that. So I, you know, I just, that that's the ultimate thing that sort of enabled me to make that decision. But, but it was tough because also I went from being very busy and traveling a lot and engaging with a lot of people all the time to all of a sudden this intense slowdown where, you know, it was just, we were just in our home, my wife, myself, my younger son, who was six at the time, eventually went back to school. So, and that was tough. That transition from go, go, go to nothing <laughs> was, was really, it was really destabilizing at first. And that, that leads to the second question then. Oh, we'll, we'll go back to the professional, I guess, afterwards when you have started finding yourself again. But in those six months, what were you doing? What was the process of dealing with grief uh, alone and with your wife? Mm-hmm. How did you engage other people, if at all? Mm-hmm. Please guide mm-hmm. us through yeah. that. Yeah. So for me, I'm, I'm an introvert. So for me, my process of grieving was very internal. I went inward in a, in a very deep way. What happened when, when, when William died is, is, is I was what I call, I, I was cracked open. So everything about me, who I was, was exposed. Everything was raw. It was kind of in front of me for me to, to either confront or not. And initially, I didn't want any part of that because I was scared of it. But eventually I realized if I was going to honor William and honor what happened to him, I would have to confront who I was as a person. And that led me down a path of seeking to make meaning out of this horrible tragedy. And for me, that was, how can I, how can I learn from this? I can live my life differently. Because mm-hmm. one of the things when you lose your child is you're confronted with your mortality head on, right? Because that's not the natural order of things. You, your child should not die before you, you do. And it made me realize that this life we have is very fragile and this is the only one we get, at least that we know about. Mm-hmm. And so I, in that moment, realized I need to confront who I am so I can live my life differently with more meaning, more purpose. And so what I did was every morning for probably four or five, even six months, I would get up every morning, I would go into William's room and I would meditate and I would pose the question, what can I learn from this? Before I'll, I'll pause you here before we go into yeah. that. I just want to roll back a bit to what you said, that everything about you was cracked open and you were so mm-hmm. vulnerable and everything was just there. And you said that you were scared of that at, at first. What was scary about that raw yeah. you yeah. in that experience? Yeah, yeah that's, it's a great question. What tends to rise to the surface of what I call this soupy mess of rawness, it's all your insecurities, all your fears, your limiting beliefs, all the, your baggage that you've carried around with you your entire life. And bubbled up in such an intense way that initially it was too much. And that's why my instinct was to look away or not want to deal with it. The problem is when you, when you try to push that stuff away, it keeps coming back at you in a more intense way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's an old saying in coaching and therapy, what we resist persists. And the more I would fight it, the harder it would come at me. And, and it was just making me more and more depressed, taking me to darker and darker places, eventually to a point where I, you know, I could either choose to throw in the towel or, you know, try to do something positive with it. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment, there was a, there was a moment, sorry, before you asked the question, there was a moment oh, uh, where I was in my office and I was just really not in a good place. And I was, and I was, I, I was at a moment of, of, of zero hope where I'd lost all hope. And as I, I was toying with some pretty dark ideas, um, something, something sort of came, something started to emerge, I guess, deep from my subconscious and and eventually, as I focused on that, it started to get more clear. And that's when I came up with the mantra, what would Willie want? And, mm-hmm. and I realized in that moment that everything I do as a result of this tragedy will either honor or dishonor William. And that, that was the thing that said, well, I can't, I can't dishonor him. I have, to, I have to live my life in a way that honors him. And that's the thing that mm-hmm. took me to, to uh, a more positive place. Mm-hmm. Before we go into that place, I, I still want to stay a bit in this discomfort because what you're saying, what, you talk, what you've lived through, this being scared, Pushing it away, not being ready to face it, is something that a lot of people face uh, or go through, and it can be a subconscious. And that's why I want to bring flavors, textures, colors to those uh, details so that people can understand and maybe relate. Because not everyone goes through such traumatic experiences as you uh, did Mm -hmm. with your family, but a lot of people might have a mild mild degree of that. And Mm -hmm. thus it goes longer and it hurts potentially more Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's of course difficult to say or compare, but that's that's why I want to uh, people to understand. When you say that it was scary, when you say there was too much, how did it feel in your body? Where what kind of thoughts were those? What what was coming to this to the surface that was that was too much for you? That you just tried to push it away, and then when you said that it was kind of you know you pushed it away and it came back more, how did that look like? So could you give us a couple of examples or just more details? Yeah. So how, how it looked or how it felt, I would say is, you know, a lot of these insecurities I, I, I've known about my whole life. I've just, and I've carried them with me my whole life. And so I guess what, what would bubble up for me was a lot of, lot of chatter in my head, right? Um, so my, my voice of self-doubt, self-criticism, self-loathing, just, just all the negative stuff. You're not good enough. How could this happen? This is your fault. You know, and all that negative, it, it, it was mostly chatter, it was mostly a sort of a cognitive thing for me. It, it was very much sort of my saboteur in my head was, was really just doing its best to, to torment me. And then with that, I think as, as that noise kept getting louder and louder, it just started to sap the energy out of me. I can remember a number of times where I would just lay either on the couch in my office or on my bed, just unable to move, almost, almost resigned to the fact that this is it. This is just how I'm going to live my life for the rest of my days. It was heavy. There was a weight of it all. Uh, and it, and it, it literally sapped the energy out of me and, and, and to the point where moving was hard <laughs> and make and any type of movement or getting up and, and moving about my day was an extreme effort. So there was, again, that the, the, there's a the mental side of it. And then the, the physical side of it was just due to the sheer exhaust of trying to push it all away. Thanks for joining. And then with that, when you have this apathy and total lack of lack of energy, what got you going every morning to get up and mm-hmm. go to William's room and sit there? And we'll talk about the meditation part in a moment. But mm-hmm. what was the driver there? So I, I think I think I so I, I don't think I was able to get there until I, I sort of came up with this notion of what would Willie want? Because when I was in that apathetic mode, I, I did I just didn't have the wherewithal to do that. There was, there was, so there was a moment where I came up with this mantra, what would Willie want? There was another pretty intense moment where I was in my room and on my bed and couldn't move and didn't want to move. And I felt like I was, had been there for hours and someone texted me and, and sort of it activated my phone. And the picture on my phone was a picture of my younger son, Kai. And that was a pretty remarkable moment because, you know, as, as I'm looking at this picture of my son, Kai, I realized that I can't, I can't be like this. I mean, I have him, you know, I have him to take care of and, and we've got to get him through this ordeal as well. And so both William and Kai sort of motivated, inspired me to just, you know, make that switch or flip, flip the mindset from, you know, staying in the dark to turning towards the light. And you said that you were going to his room, to William's room and sitting and meditating before you can tell us what that meditation led to in more details. Were you used to meditation? Did you have mm-hmm. that practice before with you? And what did that meditation look like? Did you listen to something guided, like to have a guided meditation? Did you prompt yourself yourself with some phrases, questions, whatever? What was the process there? Mm-hmm. So I had dabbled with meditation in the past. Um, I, I would, I, you know, I was one of these meditators who I would have a good run, <laughs> and then something would would throw me off, and then I wouldn't, wouldn't meditate for a while. So I, so I, ha- I had experience meditating and most of my meditation up until that point. So when I started meditation, I used apps. I think I used Mindspace or Headspace. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the one I started with. But then eventually I, I would just do it on my own. I really just focused on my breath. But there was a moment several years before everything happened where I was uh, talking to my mentor and I was trying to figure out what my life purpose was, you know, kind of a big question, obviously. And he's, he's a big meditator and, and, um, he suggested, well, why don't you sit and meditate and pose the question, what's my purpose? And then just as you meditate and focus on your breath, every so often pose the question and listen. And, you know, at that point I wasn't a huge meditator. And so I kind of gave it a try and was a bit, was a bit doubtful of, of what would come, but, but I did it. And eventually as I got into a, a calmer state and continued to pose a question, something did come. And that's where I, I came up with my life pur- purpose, which is to learn so I can teach. But the focus of that learning so I could teach wasn't my clients. It was my sons. I, I need to learn so I could teach them how to be, grow up and become, you know, great human beings. 
And so I, I kind of remembered that experience and how powerful that was. And so when I, when I, when I started meditating again, after William died, I used that same method where I would, I would go into his room. I would start by just focusing my breath. And when I got into a calm state, I would pose the question, what can I learn from this? And then just listen. And then not every time things would come to me, but they did eventually start coming. And when I was done meditating, which is probably for maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes, I would just quickly capture whatever came to me in, in, in a journal. I would also take stock of where I was in my grief, how I was feeling on that particular day. And then I would write a letter to William. And so that was the process I did. Yeah. For, like I said, for almost six months. Do you still have those letters? I do. Yeah. I have my journal. I'll never get rid of it. When you look at that these days, what do you see in that journal? I see my own unique way of, of grieving. Uh, I see, um, I see William uh, continuing to be my guide <laughs> in this life. I see sort of my purpose coming to life. So what did anything change with that purpose since William died? Since, as you said, for you to teach was not about your clients, but it was about your sons. So when you were sitting there, when you were trying to learn something from this experience, what was coming for you and, and how did that adjust or maybe not? Or maybe strengthened your purpose? I think it strengthened my purpose. Uh, I think it validated my purpose in a lot of ways. Because my, my, you know, when I was, when I did that meditation around my purpose, the thing that came to me is that my most important clients were my sons <laughs> and they continue to be my most important clients. And so I, I can, I, I want to continue to, to teach them, but I also want to teach others through my work, through my book. So no, it, it, it definitely strengthened my purpose. And the, the, the sort of, I think the beautiful circular situation that has occurred is, you know, my book was called My Teacher, My Son, and it it it, it, it refers to not just William, but also my two other sons, uh, Kai and Bodhi. And I learned from them so I can then teach them. And it's just this constant loop of learning, which I think is just quite magical. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing. If you, if you let it be, then it, it can create this really positive loop of learning and love. Beautiful. I can absolutely relate to this loop. Um, being a mom to a five-year-old, mm. um, she's been learning, teaching me things since the beginning of her life, yeah. and uh, it, it is a continuous interaction and and this growth journey together. So it's it's beautiful when it happens, I and mean, when you're aware of it, when you accept mm -hmm. it, because I don't yeah. think everyone is accepting it that way. That it is this beautiful interplay and a two-way journey uh, yeah. but once once you do accept it uh, i think some magic starts being created I've, there in that relationship absolutely i think it's it is one of the gifts of parenthood <laughs> you just have to pay attention to it if you realize the gift that that is available to you then you have to really pay attention to it so you start you mentioned your book and that becomes a bit of a jump from all that space like of those six months uh mm -hmm. to the result that has been published in September last year. What has been going there? So after those six months, how did you start going back to your professional self? How did you take all those learnings into your work? Let's let's focus on the professional at the moment. Sure. So yeah, after six months, I I realized it was time to go back. And and fortunately, my partners they they they'd always framed it as you take as much time as you need, and when you're ready, come back. And they and they tended to my clients in my absence. And, you know, it, at first I was, wasn't quite sure, you know, you don't know, you don't, you don't know how you're going to show up. How are you going to be? Are you going to be able to slide right back into the, to the rhythm of things? I definitely eased myself back in because, you know, my, my work had been quite intense. I, I traveled a lot for work to do client workshops and, and, and leadership development programs. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to go, you know, so I went from going a thousand miles an hour to zero. I didn't want to go from zero to a thousand in, 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 in one go. So. I went back in September of 2019 and, and, and I, I, I did a couple of, I had a couple of business trips throughout the fall and it was really sort of a, as a way to ease myself back in. And, you know, I just had to get used to the work again. I had, I get to, I had to get used to, uh, to connecting with my clients and also integrating what I'd learned into how I was doing the work. So it, w it was a process as well. It, it was just, you had to take it slow and just be intentional about how you're doing that. And then eventually like anything you get, you fall into the rhythm again and you get used to it. So how did you integrate your learnings into your work? What shifted there? I think the biggest shift 
for me was bringing more vulnerability into my work, bringing more of myself into my work. You know, historically, I'd, I'd been a pretty guarded person, protecting and, and not wanting to share more of myself for fear of being judged. And, you know, when you go through a process of grief, you know, and, and you are with your emotions all day long for many, many months, you get used to just sharing more of yourself, or at least I did anyway. Um, so I think I think that's sort of the key change is I just bring more of myself to my work. I, I, I'm more vulnerable. I'm more willing to say things that perhaps before I was scared to for fear of offending somebody. So I think I think it's just pushed me to be more authentic. Uh, I'll ask about that a bit more to go into detail. But interesting, as coach, usually you are there to be non-judgmental, right? To create a safe space for the person to share whatever and and grow through that. Yet you and, and I suppose you were doing that very intentionally for your clients, but you were afraid that if you would open up, you would you would be judged. It's very interesting how psychology works, or sometimes dysfunctions. <laughs> Absolutely. That we we somehow don't accept that other people could create the space that we we are doing all the time. Mm-hmm. How how we are doing it for the others all the time. I just had a conversation with some friends of mine. Some of them I've never met in person. We connected online, and uh, mm-hmm. those beautiful conversations that can happen uh, if you open up. You don't have to be in a physical space. And we discussed it how sometimes you. Your work is like you, 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 it's obvious that you do something for the others, but then it's absolutely not obvious for you to ask for that yourself, to claim it, or even to accept it when it's offered. So mm-hmm. just want to emphasize this as a reflection point for you, genius leaders listening to think about it. Like, where am I doing something that is super obvious to me to give? but absolutely not obvious to receive or to accept from, from the others or also from yourself. Because sometimes yeah. it is we who are judging who are the worst judges of ourselves, right? When it comes to judgment. So definitely, maybe definitely. sit with that. So you said that you were getting more vulnerable in your work, showing more, self, uh, more of yourself more holistically, maybe, or as a whole self. And you said something about the offending. So without the, the fear of offending someone. Mm-hmm. Has it ever happened that you shared something more openly and previously you would feel like, okay, that might offend someone. And in this situation, it never, it never happened that it actually it was offensive for the people or did you have a situations when someone got offended? No, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever had a situation where I've offended somebody because I think in, in the past I was overly cautious or at least I, or yeah, I think I was overly cautious and perhaps tentative to, to share things. I think that was more just a story in my head. Um, and like all, like all stories or narratives that, that, you know, if you believe it to be so, then it will be so. So no, I, I just think I, I, I have felt myself wanting to say something in the past, but not saying it. And whereas today sort of the filter has been <laughs> removed and my wife tells me this all the time. She says, one of my gifts is the ability to just tell someone, you know, maybe give someone a, a tough message or a message they may not want to hear, but do it in a way where they won't get offended. It's just, she says it's my natural gift. I've just kind of kind of drawn on that more and just, you know, I, I try to, you know, call it like I see it, particularly with my clients. And, 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 and you know, I, I always do whatever I do for my clients in, in their own, in their, in the interest of them and their development. So, and, and as coaches, you know, I think if you really want to get to that next level of being a coach, it is about doing that. It's definitely about this attention. How are you using your license in your coaching practice for, for your clients? So you're talking that you help leaders bring more empathy and vulnerability in the workplaces. How are you connecting your very personal story to the professional context and environment of your clients? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I look at my, my journey, uh, you know, after William died, you know, I, I paused, I reflected, I took step to try to learn from this. I, I think I've woven that process into my work. And, and, you know, I, at the end of last year, I started my own executive coaching leadership development firm. And, and, and we've woven, my partner, I have woven some of that, that ethos into our own philosophy of how we engage clients. So this notion of, first off, you have to be committed, right? To, you know, you have mm-hmm. to commit to, if you, if you realize you need to change and make the commitment to actually enact the change. So that's, I think that's first and foremost, because if you're not committed to changing, it's just not going to happen. And then it is about pausing and reflecting on where you are mm-hmm. today, on where you need to get to. And then once you've determined that it's, 
then trying new things, going out there and, and experimenting with new ways of, of leading, and then always coming back to reflecting on how it's going. So there's a bit of this loop that goes into effect. And you know, again, that 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 process worked for me. And and when we were thinking about how we wanted to frame how we do our work, that that definitely informed uh, the philosophy of the new business. I smiled a bit extra when I was uh, doing research, preparing for this conversation, and and <laughs> found that about the reflect reflect experiment and commit. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I uh, usually say that uh, there are three pillars to sustainable leadership, which is courage, curiosity, and consistency, and they're mm -hmm. quite interwoven with what with the three that you are discussing. So, experiment oh, yeah, for me, it, it is about the curiosity way and the courage. So, th th those are two interwoven as well. And then definitely. consistency is a lot about the commitment as well that you need to commit to to stay in the game until it works, work it until it works, and so on. So it, it was very interesting how how similar perspectives the, those are. Uh, Definitely. No, it, it, it's true. And I, you know, I think the, the thing, the, the main sort of underlying theme, I think, of, what, of your model, of my model, of, of, of everything I've experienced is about being intentional. Hmm. Um, as I said before, we are here for but a brief moment in time, and we can be intentional about how we choose to live our lives. In my work as a coach, I work with many leaders and see them just on this sort of treadmill and they're just kind of on autopilot mode going about their days and they're successful and that's fine. But are they, are they being as intentional as they can about how they're showing up, about how they're engaging their families, about a slew of things? My sense is the answer is no, because unfortunately, our, at least here in the US, the system is such that you know, what is valued is this constant flow of motion and doing. And, and, and so you don't have the time to ever pause, reflect and do some of the things I had the opportunity to do after William died. But I think it's important. And that that's sort of a bit of my mission here. This word intentional has been coming up in the last, this is at least third interview mm -hmm, in a row mm -hmm. without me guiding into that, right? Yeah. So I'm observing that something is in the air about that, or I'm attracted to people who, who are talking about that. So what is intentional living to you? How do you teach it to those busy executives that you work with? Mm -hmm. Intentional living to me is, is taking stock. Not, not, not all the time, but every so often just taking stock. What's going on with you? How are you showing up? And, and based on that taking stock, what do you need to change? And then once you figure out what you need to change, how are you going to go about then changing it? I think it's, it, it can even happen in small places. It's just about being intentional with setting up an agenda for the meeting you're about to go to so that you can accomplish what you set out to do as opposed to what happens most often is you sit around a room or on a, on a, on a, in a virtual meeting, you get a bunch of people to come and you don't accomplish what you set out to do because you lack the intention or there's lack of structure. So that's another, it shows up in a lot of different ways. I was recently talking to um, a friend of mine who's a, he's a senior partner at a, a, at a consulting company, and he's been sort of recognized as somebody who who's been able to balance his work and his life, which is not common in the consulting profession. And so I asked him, well, how do you do that? And he said, ruthless prioritization. Mm -hmm. So I think being intentional about ruthlessly prioritizing what's important to you and what's not, and then attending to what's important. And you really have to, you know, if you have 10 things that are important, then you're not ruthlessly prioritizing things. And I think it's maybe there are got to be like three things that are important to you. So that's mm -hmm. also being intentional. It's about really focusing your attention on what matters most. I'm curious how you ease people into that intentional um, living with a taken stock. Speaking of from experience, I sometimes end up working with very successful entrepreneurs or leaders who are ticking all the boxes of the society of what success mm -hmm. is, but mm -hmm. they are so far away from how they would like to live or who they would like to be as a human, not as a professional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That when we try to take stock, that scares the shit out of them. Excuse my language. Yeah. And they're like, not going in there, not opening that Pandora's box. So of yeah. course, I have my methods, but I'm curious, how do you work with that to really make it less scary for people to start looking into, into that box or looking inwards to truly take stock? I, I think part of it is easing them into that, right? Uh, you know, because like anything, when we have a pattern of behavior or mindset that's guided us for an extended period of time, we follow that because we formed a belief that that is the way to be or that works, right? And so the only way for them to adopt being more intentional, taking stock is to get them to believe that doing so will help them, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think you have to, I like to do sort of small micro experiments to just start to 
create that belief. Because once you have belief, then then I think that's that's the thing you have to be. You have to get people to believe that if I get off this this treadmill, if I get off this autopilot mode, I can still be successful and I can have or I can tend to the other important parts of my life or or whatever it is that they aspire to to get mm-hmm. to. I think the problem is so many people have this belief that if they if they get off the treadmill or get off autopilot mode, they, they'll fall behind. And uh, it's scary because, you know, these are ambitious people and they don't want to fall behind. Mm. Uh, but they have to prove to themselves that you can do it this way and still be successful, just as my friend has proven at one of the premier consulting companies in the world. So. Yeah. And I love that the, that you're using this word experiment. This is something that I also do a lot with my clients because mm-hmm. when you say change or even shift, I'm, I'm a mind shifter, right? But even yeah. those words, they sometimes are too one way in people's minds. That Okay. Mm-hmm. If I change this or if I shift this, there is no way back. And I'm mm-hmm. always like saying, let's play with that. Let's experiment. Let's set it up. And you can always roll back. So yeah. like, e- that's one of the ways of easing it. Just also just by choosing those words that can, yes. oh, that are not as definitive somehow or kind of yeah. heavy. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you so, 100%. I mean, and, and when you think about an experiment, an experiment is just there to either prove or disprove that this thing will work. And, and there's no, either, either one of those answers is fine. So go try this. You, and I tell my clients, like, go try this. And you, if you come back to me and tell me that this didn't work, then say, okay, let's get rid of it. Let's try something else. So I think it is, it is about framing it. You're right. I think people make this, this leap from, if I try this, then this is, this is the way I have to be. And that's scary, right? Because they, they don't know if that's the way they should be or if it will even be comfortable. So I think, yeah, you try it. And, and if it doesn't work, then we'll try something else. Yeah. Fascinating. So, how uh, like we kind of started answering that, but not really, not fully. How are you using those personal experiences of yours to help the professional side of your clients? Uh, how how can they bring more vulnerability into their place, more empathy into their work? Well, I think first off, they need to realize that there's a need for it, or that that somehow a lack of them doing it is is getting in their way of being more effective or more inspiring leaders. Again, I think with anything, you can go tell a leader, be more empathetic or be more vulnerable. But the question is why, you know, that their first question, why, why should I be that? I've been this way my whole life and I'm pretty damn successful. So why do I need to be that way? So, and one of the things that, you know, in my work and it's part of our philosophy, you have to, you have to identify the case for change. If you're going to ask somebody to change, the underlying question is why, what will I get if I change? Um, you know, what will be possible if I change? What what will be at risk if I don't change, right? There's a whole slew of questions you have to get people to connect with in order to realize that, yep, this is how I need to change. And, and if that means I need to be more empathetic, then we can talk about what that looks like. But just to tell people, I mean, to tell people to be more vulnerable and empathetic, which are buzzwords in 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 the, in the sort of leadership space, they, they're very important. Don't get me wrong. I, I absolutely believe in them. And I do think it's and these are important leadership attributes. But to just say do it because that's the latest trend. That's the, you know most people won't do it because of that. Mm-hmm. So how do you usually sell this idea to your clients? Why would they need to be vulnerable or empathetic? Well, first and foremost, I think you know the people they lead are demanding that of them, right? Mm-hmm. The, the 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 Gen Z, Gen Y, Millennials. These Joe's generations require a different type of leader. They want to feel connected. They want to feel inspired. They want to know who their leader is as a person which require then your leaders to be empathetic, vulnerable. Uh, also, if you are going to inspire and motivate people, you need to connect with them, which requires vulnerability and empathy. So I, I do think that times are changing with respect to how leaders lead. I mean, in you know, when, when I first started my career, that wasn't the way leaders led. <laughs> it was more command and control, do as I say, or else. But in, in, in this world now, people can switch jobs and they can go find the leaders they want to work for. Mm-hmm. When you are talking about that, uh, I could imagine that you get objection in, in some shape or form, but I don't want to talk about my personal life in my, at my workplace or in the work context. Yeah. So can, can we respect that pre- preference of leaders and still teach them to be vulnerable yes. in the workplace? How do yeah, we do so that? I think, I think there's a misconception around the word vulnerable. That if you're vulnerable, you have to bring all of who you are, your life, your personal life, all your, uh, you know, all your, your stories, all your baggage to work. No, that's not the case. I think being vulnerable is just about 
allowing your more human side to emerge every so often. So if you're dealing with a stressful situation, share, share that, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with a stressful situation and come across as human. Uh, you know, I think part of the problem is that we, we tend to put leaders on this pedestal where they, they're these larger than life people, mm. and then they become hard to connect with. So I think it, it doesn't have to be sort of this bearing of your soul. It's just in moments, just if you're feeling this way or that way, or if you have thoughts about a situation, don't be afraid to share it. Mm. Uh, I also think it's how you engage the people that you're you're leading. Get curious about them. You know, uh, get curious about why they're showing up the way they are, why they're thinking about the problem in a certain way, or why they're feeling a certain way. By by just being curious. You know, you said curiosity is a big part of how you engage your clients. I think the more curious a leader can be, the more connected they can be to the people they lead. Mm, definitely. And you, you can do it in so many different ways. I know a company that would do those check-ins when uh, on the Monday meetings, all hands meetings, mm-hmm. they would just go around the room and like, how are you today? And it's absolutely fine to say I'll pass. But at the same mm-hmm. time, this is the the time to say, like, okay, I had a tough, well, like I had a super fun weekend, but I am not, not in my best game <laughs> right now. Yeah. So then people know it. or share whatever it is and then like, i have a client who is teaching in the university and i love that she's now in the uh in her classes she actually starts by making the room as a scale a linear scale and then like okay mm. here is the zero here is the 10 who, where are you now at your energy level at your focus level and so on just to get the sense of the room and she's also like she's putting herself like okay this morning i was on four so she puts herself in four and that's yeah. like that's the level that she's taking the lecture on adjusting to how is the energy maybe swapping some exercises to first build the energy up and then go mm-hmm. into the focus work and things like that we can do it in all yeah. different ways I know people who use the weather forecast. So instead of using those potentially heavy words of like, oh, I'm sad or I'm depressed or tired or things like that, like what's your personal weather forecast? And you can be like, oh, it's sunny and windy today. So it means like yeah. it could change any moment, <laughs> but right now I'm on top yeah. or it's like, oh, it's gloomy and gray or things like that. So yeah. just experiment, dear genius leaders, what would fit to you, your personality without feeling like, okay, you need to, as, as Nick said, bear your soul uh, when you don't feel like and what would fit your team to really start opening it up and practicing those those aspects of leadership yeah it, you're you're so right it's, it's simple and small little things I, I think again i think you know in in the world of leadership development and coaching sometimes when we focus on words like vulnerability and empathy we make them have to be these big things unintentionally when they're very subtle like hey yeah. you know just share where you are energetically or how you're feeling or what the weather is, right? Just so people know where you're at and then they don't misinterpret where you're at for a different reason, right? Um, so I think a lot of these things are subtle and it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be this emotionally open book <laughs> all the time. And also, I feel like there is a bit of a notion, especially among uh, analytical techie leaders that vulnerability means some kind of unstable uh, mm-hmm. state of, like feelings just you know being like coloring everything you're not being able to focus not being able to prioritize and so on and and mm-hmm. by what what we we're just discussing i hope we're changing that narrative and that story that no it doesn't have to be that way we can bring it in very gentle ways keeping the stability keeping our strength on top of the game yeah so Nick, yeah. we discussed the vulnerability how about the empathy we have been using this word but maybe we can specify what does that mean how do we bring that into workplace as well mm-hmm. So empathy, I, I think, and believe me, after William died, there was, I experienced empathy in a lot of different flavors, right? Cause mm. some, some were great, some were, were less than great. You know, I, I, empathy really is about just being with another person and connecting with where they are emotionally. I mean, I think that's pretty much what empathy is. So, so in order to do that, you have to try to put yourself in their shoes. So obviously someone will be emotional for a reason and then just trying to connect with that. And 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 sharing how you might how you feel uh, how you might feel in that similar situation. Oftentimes, it's just as simple as acknowledging, you know, mm-hmm. how you you know how you might feel in that situation, and just verbalizing that. So that way, then the person knows that you've actually picked up on and connected with their emotion. I, I think the problem, like vulnerability with empathy, is the focus is more on what should I say? <laughs> what should I say that's empathetic? And it's really not what you should say, it's how you should say it, or it's how you should be. You don't want to, you want, you want to just be with them. 
uh, and don't try to move them along how they're feeling. Just be with them and let them be with that emotion as long as they need to be. And typically, if you've given them even a couple minutes to just acknowledge where they're at, typically it's enough to get the person to to move forward or or or, or not be as gripped by the emotion. I like how Simon Sinek says about that, that to sit in the dirt. Yeah, I really like that. It's not about you know grabbing you and getting you out of that hole or whatever it is. No, I'm I'm here, and I actually use that sometimes when we uh, start talking about some tough tougher things when I'm sharing or I'm creating space for sharing of a, of a friend. I actually say like, okay, right now I want your advice or right now I just want you to sit with me in the dirt, yeah. you know, and just like, I don't want you to solve anything. I don't want you to fix anything. Yeah. Just say the nod and say this sucks, <laughs> yeah. you know? And and some, this is something that we I think need to start thinking about when we talk about our empathy, that it's really yes. not about bringing solutions, but it's more about creating space for the, for whatever the person is going through. And as you said, how to be with a person, not about what to say to them that would yeah. be empathetic or right by the books and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we I used to do a leadership program for a consulting firm and we taught empathy. <laughs> and we, we had this equation where we said, uh, E, empathy does not equal PS problem solving. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, so you can't problem solve your way out of, out of an emotion or you shouldn't. Um, let the person be with their emotion. And, and often when you do that, it will, it will create that moment they need to feel seen. Did you use this? Uh, it's not about the nail video in that course. Oh, uh, I love that. Course. It's oh, I love it. Yeah. 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 It's a great, it's a great video. I mean, obviously it, it, there's gender generalizations, but it's, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. I actually include that in the show notes. I'm taking a note for myself, genius leaders. If you haven't seen, it's not about the nail, either Google it or just click on the link to the show notes to see what we're talking about here with this equation. E does not equal PS. I think this is very important to understand like intellectual level and emotional level are two different ones and you can't solve emotional problems on the intellectual level. All right, Nick, just to start wrapping up, what do you think we haven't covered yet that you think it's very important for leaders to, to understand from your personal experiences or from your work uh, with your clients right now, be it about vulnerability, empathy, or something else? Um, I mean, I think we've covered a lot. So I think it's been, it's been a really, I, I really love sort of the robustness of our conversation. Look, I, I think, I think it, this will be a bit of a so a reemphasis of a lot of what we talked about, but I think to be the leader you aspire to be, you have to periodically step back and and just take stock of are you being the leader you aspire to be, and and if not, then figure out why that is and figure out how you might need to change, and then be intentional about how you need to change. Whether that's being more vulnerable, being more empathetic, it, it could also be just being more strategically oriented or more visionary, whatever it is. But if you don't step back every so often, you're never going to find out. If you don't seek out feedback from the people you lead, you're never going to find out. I think the biggest, the biggest regret is getting to the end of your career and, 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 and saying to yourself, what did I just do? <laughs> right. Mm. Make I've been sure busy. What, what for? Yeah. Yeah. Make sure what you're doing is for the right reasons. Uh, make sure how you're doing it is a way that you would be proud to tell others about. Um, so I, I, yeah, I know we've, we've talked about that, but that to me, is is perhaps the most important thing because again, this is it. We are here for this one lifetime, and you want to maximize how you how you how you show up in that lifetime in a way that you, you would be proud of. One quick follow up question here: We talk about this taking a step back, reflecting, uh, taking stock, just to give an understanding of what that could look like. Because I could imagine that someone thinks, oh, I need to sit down and meditate every day for half an hour. Or maybe like, oh, I need to go like once a month for a full day and like, you know, sit alone in, uh, in some hotel room and reflect. So what do you usually prescribe <laughs> to your clients? I mean, of course, your sessions are already one of those reflection points. But if someone mm-hmm. doesn't have, for example, opportunity to hire you right now, what could they start with to start reflecting and not being scared of like, the intensity of the process. I think any reflection has to start with the question, right? You know, for me, what can I learn from losing my son? You know, and, and I think, and I, and I write about this in my book. While the while what the question is is important, just the fact of asking the question is is almost more important mm-hmm. because when you when you put that question out there, it's going to force you to pause and consider it. And so, I would say 
to start off this process of reflecting and taking stock, what is the question that you're seeking to find an answer to? And then periodically dedicate some time to thinking about what the answer might be. Maybe, maybe it's through meditation. Maybe it's through going out for a walk in nature. Maybe it's, you know, talking about it with your, your partner or whoever, right? But the point is, we all have a question or a set of questions that if we find answers would lead us to have uh, more meaningful lives. So it starts with the question. How do you not trick yourself into asking the right questions, the comfortable ones quote, uh, that are easier to answer to avoid the discomfort of sitting with a real question? I think if you find yourself thinking too long about what the question is, you're probably doing that. So I think you don't want to overthink mm-hmm. the question. I, I think it's just whatever comes to mind, start there. I think when we overthink it, then we can tend to get into, well, let me game the system and ask the easy question, right? Um, so I think just let whatever comes, start with that. Whatever comes to your mind, whatever question it is, let it come and then play with it, reflect on it, sit with it. I love that suggestion, Nick. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for not throwing in the towel back then, five years ago, and really honoring the life of William and bringing the, the wisdom and the learnings from that experience into the, your own life, your family's lives, but also the lives of people, yeah, of, your, of your clients, but also the broader community. We do need these stories, I think, because everyone faces some adversity sooner or later in life. And of course, the mm-hmm. scope is not always as big as it has been for your family and for you personally, but we can always learn from these stories and have them as a reminder for ourselves. Okay, I can actually decide what do I do mm-hmm. with this experience. I yes. can define what it means for my future life and for my destiny. So yes. thank you so much for being that example of, of deciding the meaningful and intentional and the right way, so to say. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. No, th- thank you. It's been a pleasure to, to connect with you today and to, and to share my story with you. And to you, geniuses, I want to remind you, as always, that you have the power to decide for your destiny and to decide what any experience and any phase of your life means to you on a larger scale of things. And uh, if you need that reminder, I love you. I feel you. I see you. And I believe in your right decisions. Take care. Until the next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Genius Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button. Please rate, review, and share to help more people discover the show and become the better leaders. For more conversations about living in your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honors conversation about leading yourself and others, and it is my honor to be a guide in overcoming everything.